This lesson is a little different than what I kind of do generally. Um, I think a lot of times I'm, well, I want to believe that I'm encouraging, um, but uh, I guess that's for you guys to determine if I encouraged you or not. But this time I am kind of going into the warnings of God and looking at the ways that he warns us and how often we fail to take on his warnings. And I think especially those who feel like they already saved, they tend to jump over the warnings that are in the Bible because we think that we are not going to experience them because he's not talking to us. But when I look at it, and um, we will see things a little differently. So hopefully, you know, with everything that I try to bring, I'm always trying to have us look at ourselves because uh, it's easy to not be introspective and see where you line up um, according to God's view, because that's all that really matters. So I will just jump into this and see where God gives each and every one of you. And I do pray that you guys have um, ears to hear and a spirit that is open to receive. Um, some of it that we go over today is kind of hard to digest and um, it's easy to push off and ignore, but it's a reason why it's there and it's for our teaching. Um, if we believe the Bible, which I can finally say I actually believe the Bible, um, it's taken me a lot of years to get to the point where I can say I really, really believe it, but I'm happy that I'm here. But if we believe that it's God's instructions for us, we can't nitpick what we want to read and what we want to apply. We've got to look at the book in a whole. And of course, we don't know it all. Lord knows I do not know it all, that I am not perfect in this word, that I am learning things constantly that I never knew before. But I think that's a part of saying that I'm a believer, that as I learn something new, I believe what God gives me. So when we started this, it was really about us just learning God. It was not about anything, I think, even deeper than that. It was simply, let me learn him for myself. When you're raised in church, a lot of times you tend to borrow your parents' God, and he's not really yours. And as you mature, I think even if you get saved when you're younger, a teenager or whatever, I think you still have to come to a maturity in God because God is a very mature subject. It's really not for kids. It is a big responsibility to say that I'm going to let God be my God mm -hmm. and that I'm going to live for him and I'm giving my life to him. It's a big thing to do that. And though we sometimes toss it around like it's a small thing, it's just about getting baptized and it's just about getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And we think that that's the totality of salvation. And we feel that fail to realize that I am saying that my life is no longer mine that my life belongs to God, that I'm putting everything in his hands to say, you get to decide my life for me. You can't make that decision at six. You don't have the capability to do it. I can go through, and I'm not saying God doesn't save because I believe I did get the Holy Spirit at six, but I'm saying that I was not in a place to choose God. You know what I mean? And once we get older, and it's a constant choosing, you choose every day. Every day you're deciding, am I doing this for God or not? Is this the life I want to live? It's not something that's done once and for all, and then you just walk in it. It's constant choosing. So it's, it's with that that I, I have the passion 
to find God because I realize I need to choose him daily because he keeps choosing me. Every morning he wakes up and he chooses me. You know, he chooses to give me grace. He chooses to give me mercy. He chooses to have favor on my life. He chooses. I have to choose too. You know, and sometimes we don't want to choose. We just want to kind of float through it. And like, hopefully he won't ask me no questions that are too hard. And I got to make a decision. We're going to just get through this day and just be like, you know, whatever. And it's not like that. A lot of times we're constantly being asked questions and we just don't answer them. Um, So if we believe in divine order, that all this is orchestrated, we have to also trust when we get revelations about things. Um, I know when I first started, I was like angry, right? Because I'm like, man, if people would have broke it down to me like this, it would have been so different. Like I would have seen God different. I would have felt like my walk would have been different, like all of that. And then like God checked me, as he often does, and was like, but the Bible was already in front of me. Like, you didn't read it. That's your fault. Like, don't be trying to be mad at somebody else because you didn't get it. You didn't even want to get it. So shut up and sit down. You know, pretty much so. Um, So from there, I had to realize that I needed to humble myself and realize that so much of it is my own responsibility. You know, where we are in God, how much we know about God, it's us. What you don't know is your fault because he put it all there. So whatever you're lacking or that's you, you don't really want to know. Because you would have asked him and he would have gave it to you. Because he said, if you seek me, you find me. If you're not, the door opens. So stop talking about what you don't know and go find it. It's right there. And you're smart enough to get it. Plus, you got the Holy Spirit, supposedly. So you got no excuse. Um, So, you know, back in November, uh, I like giving you all this extra because I have to, like, set up what I think I have to say. Right. So back in November, God started dealing me with like the warnings, right? And I'm like, wow, why are we going here? You know, because I'm like, oh, I want to see, you know, you think of the end of the year and you're like, where am I, you know, going to kind of retrospective and, oh God, what did I miss this year? What can I do better? Like all of that. And in November, he gave me um, Jeremiah. And that's when I was like, okay. So I started reading that and I'm like, wow, that's really heavy stuff. That's deep. Don't know if that's for me or if it's supposed to be for someone else. So I'll just sit with it. And I remember the first time when we started doing Thirsty, this was like our third Thirsty, right? So like eight years ago. And it was the first time he ever gave me warnings. I was doing Chronicles and we were dealing with the one that everybody remembers and loves. Um, if my people, thank you, love you, so helpful. If my people that are called my names will humble themselves and pray together and all that stuff, right? I just messed that up, but y'all know what it is. After you read all that, it's such a heavy warning at the end, right? Which I never read that, right? And look, a lot of the stuff I didn't read just because I didn't read it. So I was like, I can't teach that. That's terrible to say to people. Because I had just got into like the love of God, right? And I was just really falling in love with him. It was like, he's so gracious. He's so wonderful. He's so beautiful. And then he showed me that. And I'm like, man, you a trip, right? And I'm like, because you know, the Old Testament God is something else. If you really look at what he did and who he is, he can, whoa, like he don't really be playing. Like he, dang, you be taking people out, like no joke. And that is, it was hard for me to, I got a little uncomfortable with him, right? I was a little uncomfortable and I was like, who are you? You know, you have that, you're this harsh God and then you're this loving, gracious God. Who am I choosing? 
So I had to become comfortable with both sides of God and respect both sides, right? And that's, it's a duality there that we have to embrace that a lot of Christians don't want to look at. And when people pose it to us, we're offended because they were like, what about that Old Testament God that was killing kids and everything? And then you want to talk about the grace and mercy Jesus that keeps forgiving everybody. He's something else, right? But I came to respect both of them. And I came to the realization that I have my own perimeters, right? I have my own rules of engagement. There's only a certain amount of stuff I'm dealing with before you get kicked out of my life. And everybody hasn't. Why would I think God shouldn't have that? I mean, it's a little arrogant of me to say, God, you just accept everything. But I can get to pick and choose me with my flawed up, messed up self. And I have to say, God has to accept everything. Well, that's a little hypocritical. So I had to come to embrace the God that gets to choose. And he gets to set perimeters. And he gets to say, I'd like this, this, and this. And if you do this, this, and that, I don't want you. Because I do that. Okay, so just making that clear. So then when I started really dealing with the cross, right, because I felt like to really fall in love with God, you've got to fall in love with the cross. You've got to really take that in and embrace it and understand the gravity of it and everything. And I remember when I was like reading it and dissecting it, I prayed and asked God to let me feel what he felt. Because I didn't want to just know the mechanics of it. You got up there, you died, you rose again, had a little battle with Satan, and now I have salvation. I wanted to really get into his feelings. I wanted to understand and feel like, like really feel it. Feel what he felt in Gethsemane when he was praying and begging for God to take it away. And what that felt like. And then when he was on the cross and when he said, you forsook me. Oh, that's a heavy feeling when you really go into that. So he granted me that. I don't know why I prayed that, but at any rate, sometimes you be praying and you thinking you being deep and stuff, and you're like you shouldn't have prayed that. But um, at any rate, I he has granted me his heart and his feelings, so I really feel him. Um, I think we forget how emotional God is, and we forget how deeply He feels that we see him as just behaviors and actions, but we take away the passion that he lives in. And that is a totally different thing because when you're in a relationship with somebody, you've got to be able to feel what they feel. It's what keeps us from acting a fool with each other. It's what keeps us in line because it's like, I know that that would hurt you deeply if I did that, so I won't do it for that reason, right? Not because I don't really want to, but just for the reason that, dang, I would never want to cause you that much pain, right? So that's how I view my relationship with God is that I never want to make him sad, you know? I'm even over that anger part um, because I just don't want to make him sad because, oh, that's so bad to see people sad, you know? But if we think about even when we get the angriest, we tend to get the angriest with people that we love the most. Um, the people that have already holding our hearts in their hand. So when we feel like we've been mistreated by them and they stomp all over it, the anger comes out, but really underneath it is just love. It's that you hurt me so deeply that all I can do is want to slap you because I have no other recourse and I can't stop this pain from coming. So in some way I have to act out because the pain is so deep. And I think that's really where God comes from. 
so much with his warnings. It is that love that is so deep for us that we keep hurting him and he has no other recourse but to lash out on us. We don't want to feel the lashings, but it, it's coming if we don't get ourselves together. So I feel like he gave me all this so that I can deliver his warnings in love. Because oftentimes we, do, we hear the warnings in anger. And, like, and when someone's angry at you, the first thing you get is defensive. So you actually don't receive it. But if I can come with you in love and show me why you're hurting me and what the gravity of what you're doing to me, then you're maybe a little bit more open to hear where I'm coming from. And every time you see God's warning, you will always see that it is layered with love, repentance, choice, and a clean state. Always keep this in mind. So whenever you're hearing warnings, no matter where it is in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it's always layered with love, repentance, choice, and a clean state, state, sorry, slate at the end. Okay? Um, so we're going to start the lesson from Jeremiah. And the interesting thing with this is about 15 or 20 years ago, a guy gave me this exact scripture. And that was when I first like kind of started trying to get spiritual. I don't even know if I was really trying back then. This was like well before my mom died. After my mom died is when I really started to try to find God for myself. But before then, he was, you know, he does stuff that we don't even realize he's doing to prime us to get us ready. And he gave me Jeremiah. And this is when I, you know, started teaching and was counseling people and all of that stuff. And it was odd for me because I was young. And I, you know, my mother kind of gave me carte blanche to do what I do. And she, for some crazy reason, really trusted me um, to do this. So she must have gotten the ear from God, I want to say, to give me, you know, a license to be able to do that. So when I started, I was not teaching stuff that the church normally taught. It was always something a little different. I'm coming from an emotional stance. I'm coming from a psychological stance. And mixing it in with spirituality, and this made some people very uncomfortable, and other people's received it. But at any rate, it was different. So I was not always smiled upon in what I delivered. I've always been in the background with what I did. I never titled myself, labeled myself. I feel like that's so silly, right? Like, you just do it. And I always felt, and I started counseling and talking to people when I was like 15. For some crazy people, people that were way older than me would come to me with their problems. And I mean, literally, like my older sister's friends would come by the house. She's not even there just to come talk to me. And somehow I had words to say that made them better. What the heck? So from there, I always knew it was never me. Like, I never took it as, wow, I'm smart or I'm gifted. I always knew this was God. I always knew this was just, and I wasn't even all that into God. But I was like, I know this is God. I know this is him giving me some gift to be able to touch other people's lives. So with that, it was, I never took it as being mine, if that makes sense. It was always his. So even though I've been doing this for a long time, and I would like to say I've touched a lot of lives, and I've made a lot of people's lives at least fuller and richer and better somehow, I never wanted to say that this is who I am. It was just something that I did, right? But I feel like God now is pushing me to walk more boldly in it and more confidently in it and be able to stand in him and say that I'm his chosen one which is crazy. So um, I prefer the humble route. 
you know, this is so uncomfortable. And this is why I told you all this, because I'm uncomfortable with what I have to say right now. So I felt like I needed to quantify it <laughs> just to make myself feel better, right? So this is what he gave me, Jeremiah 4 and 10. I didn't I said 4 and 10. Jeremiah 1, sorry, and 4. And I'm reading from the message translation, so it may be a little different if you have King James. So it says, this is what God said. And let me say, he gave me 4 through 8 15 years ago, and he just finished it up with me. So it says, this is what God said. Before I shaped you in the womb, I knew all about you. Before you saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. A prophet to the nations. That, um, that's what I had in mind for you. But I said, hold it, Master God, look at me. I don't know anything. I'm only a boy. And God told me, don't say I'm only a boy. I'll tell you where to go, and you will go there. I will tell you what to say, and you will say it. And don't be afraid of a soul. I'll be right there looking after you. God reached out, touching my mouth, and said, Look, I've just put my words in your mouth, hand-delivered. Hmm, see what I've done. I've given you a job to do among nations and governments. Your job is to pull up and tear down, take apart and demolish, and then start over building and planting. So when I look at that, that's like what I've done. You know, all my classes that I've taught, it is about tearing up old ground. It's about restarting again. It's about healing what was done, planting new things. And um, I will say that the people that I've seen have become like beautiful trees. I hate getting so emotional, but it's just amazing how if you give your life to God, he really will use you. Like, he really wants us to be a part of him. And a part of him is that creativity. It is about newness. It is about, you know, always being able to be amazing like he is. And we sell ourselves short so often because we get stuck in this rut of being. And we fail to realize God has so much for us. And it's not the things we think about so much. It's not about riches of today and stuff we can touch. It's about this inner thing that you have peace and joy. And you have understanding and you have contentment. And you're happy with life. Like no matter even the crap that comes. Because good Lord, I have not had a life without crap. But even when crap comes, you have this assurance that but God would never do harm to me. And to get there, it is crazy because you go through so much to get to be confident that God wants you, which is crazy that God wants us. Like God, the God of creation, the God that could choose anybody, you choose me? I am so messed up and fallible and I... Don't get it right half the time and all that, but you want me? That is crazy. But we go in with this thing that God wants to get us, so it takes me off the path of going to, but God loves me. Ah. So um, drop down to verse 17. He says, but you up on your feet and get dressed for work. Stand up and say your piece. Say exactly what I tell you to say. Don't pull your punches or I'll pull you out the lineup. Stand at attention while I prepare you for work. 
I'm making you an impregnable as a castle, immovable as a steel post, solid as a concrete block wall. You are a one-man defense system against the culture, against Judas kings, and against princes, and against priests and local leaders. They'll fight you, but they won't even scratch you. I'll back you up every inch of the way. So in that, I realized that wherever God has taken me, I'm about to really say some stuff that nobody want to hear, but I got to say it, right? Because I can't get pushed out the lineup because other folks don't like me. I just have to say it and realize that whoever's ears it falls on, it falls on the right people's ears because obviously y'all open to hear what I got to say. That's why you're here. So there's a lot of lessons that we can learn that God spoke to Jeremiah. And one thing that struck out as I was reading was um, these chapters is what often the warnings we have, and I said this in the beginning, have, we have excluded ourselves from the warnings. But if we really paid attention, God gave his warnings to his people. He wasn't giving it to the world. He wasn't, when he was talking to Israel, that's his chosen people. He wasn't trying to get the other folks. So why do we think we're excluded from what he's saying when I'm talking to you? Don't ever think he's not talking to you. He wants us right. We're the ones who he cares about. What has happened is we've gotten too puffed up. And we think we're too saved. And we stop being affected by the warnings. And we've just become people that warn. I'm going to tell you about everything that's going to go wrong. I'm going to tell you you're going to hell. You're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. Uh, he's talking to me. The warning's to me. And since I ain't got it all right yet, I, I don't know how much I could be screaming at you. Because we should just be sitting together in a circle saying, your confession, your confession, your confession. <laughs> this needs to be an AA meeting instead of all this up here screaming and yelling. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's why he said confess one to another. We weren't supposed to ever be up on some high horse looking down on other people. We just all sinners side by grace trying to get it right. So, um, today, I don't want you to really look at others and think about other people. I want you to just think about yourself and where you're failing God. So, don't look at where you're not in this. I want you to look at where it does fit you. Because a lot of times you're like, oh, I don't do that. I'm out of that one. But you did that, that, and that. I'm glad you didn't do the other two, but you got six of them. Why are you happy about them too? You still messed up. So, we feel God, but what is more offensive is that we become prideful and arrogant in our failings. So this is some of what God chided Israel and Judah for. And I pray that God gives us all ears to hear and an open heart to receive. So let's go to chapter 2, verse 4. I'm going to skip around because, you know, he said a lot, but I want to just give you some good little pieces. So 2 and 4 is how he starts it. Hear God's message, house of Jacob. Yes, you, house of Israel. Skip down to verse 10, um, the second part. He says, look closely. Has this ever happened before that a nation has traded in its gods for gods that aren't even close to gods? But my people have traded my glory for empty God dreams and silly God schemes. Stand in shock, heavens, at what you see. Throw up your hands in disbelief. This can't be God's decree. My people have committed a compound sin 
They've walked out on me, the fountain of fresh flowing waters, and then dug cisterns, cisterns that leak, cisterns that are no better than sieves. So the two sins, first we forsook God, didn't really want him, and then we hewed out broken cisterns. So cisterns are man-made storage devices to hold water. And the sieves are man-made man ways to clean the water. So what he's saying here is you chose counterfeit products instead of me. You've created God-like things, our church rules, our traditions, all of that stuff. And we've taken on, oh, that means you're holy. That means you're clean. Oh, you didn't do that. You didn't say that. You wear this. Man-made. Forsook God, what he says to us to do. We want to drink dirty water instead of from the pure fountain of Christ. That's insane. Insane. Just think about that. How much of our religion has become man-made? How much of it does never line up with the scriptures? What we participate in week in, week out, year in, year out. For centuries, we've been doing some stuff that has nothing to do with what he said. And we hold on to it way more tighter than we even hold on to scripture. Like somebody will break your back if you say some stuff is wrong. How many rules have we created to show we are clean? We are simply saying, I'll accept what you say makes me clean instead of what God says. We choose the impure over the pure. Look at James 1 and 27, which I didn't have written down, but you can look at it yourself, um, which says what pure religion is. We're not doing that. We don't see that as pure. He goes in to save feeding the homeless, taking care of the widow, taking care of the fatherless. That's what pure religion is. How often do we hear somebody to do that? Our pure religion is making sure we're in the seat every Sunday, making sure we dress head to toe, making sure we wave in our hand. We don't do the requirements that are in the Bible. Man-made. We may think we're getting away with it, but God has the final say. What if all we did was really for naught? And at the end, we stand there and he's like, that didn't mean nothing to me. That wasn't what we required. No, you didn't get a checkpoint for that. You know, we think we got all these crowns we're going to be throwing back. He may be snatching our hair because we ain't done nothing. Hmm. Go to verse 19. This is God saying to his people, your evil ways will get you a sound thrashing. That's what you'll get. You'll pay dearly for your disloyal ways. Take a long, hard look at what you've done and its bitter results. Was it worth it to have walked out on your God? A long time ago, you broke out of the harness. You shook off all restraints. You said, I will not serve. And off you went, visiting every sex and religion shrine on the way like a common whore. You were a select mind when I planted you from completely reliable stock. And look how you've turned out. A tangle of rancid growth, a poor excuse for a vine. Scrub, using the strongest soaps. Scour your skin raw. The sin grease won't come out. I can't stand to even look at you. This is what God is saying to the church. 
You're full of just greasy sin that you can't even scrub clean. How dare you tell me I'm not stained by sin? I've never chased after ball sex gods. Well, look at the tracks you've left behind in the valley. How do you account for what is written in the desert dust? Tracks of a camel in heat, running this and that. Tracks of a wild donkey in runt, sniffing the wind for the slightest sin of sex. Who could possibly corral her on the hunt for sex, sex, and more sex? Insatiable, indiscriminate, promiscuous. Slow down, take a deep breath. What's the hurry? Why wear yourself out? Just what are you after anyway? But you say, I can't help it. I'm addicted to alien gods and I can't quit. That's what we're saying to God. Now, before we get high-minded and we say, well, I'm not the one that's out just having sex with any old body. That's not what my thing is, right? Because we look at that and that's what we see, right? So we, I'm clean in that way. I'm not like a hoe, right? So you ask yourself, what have you become addicted to? What is driving you away from God? Whatever it is, God sees you as be in bed with it. So, yeah, you're a whore, too. God sees you having an intimate relationship with whatever you're addicted to. Relations that were supposed to be reserved just for you and him. Our addictions will always be insatiable. We will never be able to fill them. And they will never fill us, which is why we keep running after them. And this may be hard to take, but even our worship has become quite insatiable. Mm -hmm. We are never full and never at ease. We're always seeking the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. The high, the high, the high. We stay in a hot pursuit of something to fill us. Sniffing everywhere to get a high but never satisfied. So, your idols can be anything. Your fleshly desires, your job, your kids, your house cars, even your desire to get the things that you can't have. You're, you idolize it. You worship it. It's always about you. Your pain and your abuses you can idolize. You just set up little shrine gods and you just worship at their feet. They, 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 uh, everything you do is about that. Your fear, that was my sin. Your grief, that was mine for a while too. Your suffering and your trials, we worship that stuff. We make graven image of them and we sit them there. We're no different than the children of Israel. We just call it different. What have you put on a pedestal that's far greater than God? Your knowledge, how smart you are, how much you know the book, your scriptures and verses. Your denomination. People can become your idols. Who have you put above God? Many people have their pastors up as idols. We just worship the words that come out their mouth. This is very serious. Like he's very offended by us doing anything that we worship other than him. It's the reason why he said he's a jealous God. 
And we have to see that God sees us as an adulterer. He's looking at us and saying that you're just an adulterer. Yeah. Right? And we try to pride ourselves in not being that kind of a person. God, some people are, but you know, just one thing you can say, well, I'm not that. Yeah, we are. We're in adultery. When you go to bed at night, what's lying next to you? Who gets in the covers with you? Not a person. But what keeps you up at night? What has you worried? He said he gives you peace. He says we should be able to lay down and rest. So when we're up scrambling, full of anxiety, full of fear, confusion, ah, that's who I worship. That's who's greater than God. Your ambition, your plans, your will, your hopes, your dreams, all of that can become what we, what we worship. I'm going to do everything I am hustling. Your hustle may take you away from God because you may be hustling for something that God didn't want for you. So what if what he wants for you is to have a much more meager way of living? Because in America, God forbid that. God forbid he have you just, you know, working at McDonald's and having some free time to do his will. That is of the devil. That is not of Jesus. I'm just saying, somebody, he said the poor will be with you always. He was poor. He didn't even have a place to sleep. The Jesus was sleeping from pillar to post, asking folks for a room. The apostles did not have a place. It was the graciousness of others that took them in. They didn't know where their meals were coming from. They didn't know where they were going to sleep. But you're supposed to have so much. And if you don't, you see God as he just enlisted you. And when you get it, oh, you blessed, you got favor. <laughs> All this favor mess just gets on my nerves. Uh, at any rate, go to verse 27. He says, All I ever see of them is their backsides. They never look me in the face. We lost our intimacy because we put idols in front of him. I don't want to talk to you, God. You ain't got nothing for me. But when things go badly, they don't hesitate to come running, calling out, get a move on, save us. Why not go to your handcrafted gods you're so fond of? Rouse them. Let them save you from your bad times. You got more gods, Judah, than you know what to do with. And you know we do this. We done done everything on our own, our self-sufficient selves. But when we get in trouble, oh, God, please save me. As we get to falling out and running to the altar and pouring oil over us and doing all this, you wasn't doing all that when you was cutting the food. When everything was working out, you wasn't thinking about God. You felt like you had favor then. Can you imagine how offensive that is to God? Right? Like you're worshiping all this stuff. You got all your images. You just, they just everything to you. But you realize they can't do nothing for you. So in the back of your mind, you always knew that you needed God. And you knew and you hoped that he would always come through. Because we have relied so much on that grace and mercy. That we can just cut a fool up until the moment we need it. Run to God, save me. Because he's such a gracious God and he does it, right? And then we just go back to the graven images because we never got rid of them. 
We just put them in the drawer. Mm, Jesus. <sighs> so we crawl out of bed, just to make it clear. We crawl out of bed with our lover. We've been at his house, her house, smoozing, drinking, having a good time. But we realize that lover can't do nothing for me when I get in a tough spot. So I run back to my husband and say, can you please reinstate the vows? I'm sorry. Um, I ain't going to do that again. But then I crawl out of bed with my husband and go back to the lover the moment that everything works out. See, that's why we're in adultery. Verse 29. What do you have against me? Running off to assert your independence. I wasted my time trying to train your children. They've paid no attention to me, ignored my discipline. And you've gotten rid of your God messengers, treating them like dirt and sweeping them away. Think about all the people God sent to Israel, to the children. Hey, stop. Hey, can you look? You're messing up. Hey, um, one more time. Okay, just say you for, you're going to get it right and I'll take you back. How many people did he send to them? And you kept just saying, oh, he ain't got nothing to say. He ain't. Think about that. Because the people, and then think about everyone he sent, he sent with a warning. That if you don't do this, this is the price you're going to pay. We don't want to hear those messages. Today, we don't want to hear those. We want to hear grace and mercy. We want to hear favor. We want to hear everything that makes us feel like we're okay. But the moment somebody sends something to say, hey, God is about tired of y'all. And not in the way where you see even sometimes. He's tired. He's throwing stuff out now saying, look. Yes, and we, we believe so wholeheartedly, supposedly, that the rapture going to happen, right? He's soon to come. You think you're going? Like, he has requirements. He really has them. He says, what a generation you turned out to be, verse 31. Didn't I tell you? Didn't I warn you? Have I let you down, Israel? Am I nothing but a dead in street? Do you hear God saying, why aren't I enough? Like, feel his pain in that. Of, I've done so, I led you out. I've provided food. I've, provi I've done everything that you ever asked me to do. Am I not enough? Why is God not enough yet for us? Why isn't he enough? Why can't we say, man, this God thing is big and huge and real and amazing. Like, it's worth me sacrificing whatever I have to sacrifice. It's worth me not fulfilling my fleshly desires. It's worth me feeling bad today so that God can smile on me. We're not there yet. We still want it to be about us. Why do people say good riddance from now on we're on our own? In essence, we keep saying I will be my own God. It's the same crap that happened with Eve. Satan said, hey, if you do this, you get to be like God. He doesn't mean no good for you. You can be like him. And we like, I can. I'm pretty amazing. I've read some books. I know this. I can figure it out. You know, I can be a motivator. I can get my life straight. I don't really need God. 
32, young women don't forget their jewelry, do they? Brides don't show up without their veils, do they? But my people forget me. Day after day after day, they never give me a thought. What an impressive start you made to get the most out of your life. You founded schools of sin, taught graduate courses in evil, and now you're sending out graduates in cap and gown, except the gowns are stained with the blood of your victims. All that blood convicts you. You cut and hurt a lot of people to get where you are. And yet you have the gall to say, I've done nothing wrong. God doesn't mind. He hasn't punished me yet. Don't look now, but judgment's on the way. Aimed at you who say, I've done nothing wrong. So all you people that think you're so saved and you're so forgiven and you got so much grace and mercy, I see you as doing something wrong. And my judgment is coming. You think it's just a small thing, don't you? To try out another sin project when the first one fails. We just keep doing the same thing over. Oh, we'll repackage it. We'll turn it a different way. We'll make it look like this. But he hasn't punished you yet. So we just get happy in the grace and mercy. We get happy because we ain't been stricken, falling on the floor. But we ain't going to stop what we're doing. I hope you can make it past God's judgment. Because if we look, when he throws down some stuff, folks don't survive. They don't get out. I'm not willing to take my chances. Lord have mercy. We must be careful when we constantly scream we are innocent and we've done nothing wrong. Idolatry is seen as adultery to God. But how many of us have repented for being an adulterer? We ain't thrown that sin to Jesus. We ain't said I'm an adulterer. I had to repent after I read this. I said, Lord, I have been an adulterer. Lord, please forgive me. That was not my intentions. How nasty is that? Just sleeping around. And we don't, we don't sleep with just one. We sleep with a whole lot of idols. That's why he called us a whore. If you read the King James Version and he's talking about the, the animals and heat, you're just in heat. Sniffing around, finding whoever you can sleep with. Just whoever you can. Just, just got your nose in there. And then he said that to them, he said, at least once they get it, they're satisfied and they calm down. Not you. You just keep going because you're insatiable. You can't stop. You just stay in heat. You see how nasty God thinks we are? And we think he just smiling down. <laughs> and he sees us as just greasy sinners. And no one thinks fondly of a whore. No matter how, you know, open we are sexually and like, oh, no one thinks fondly of a whore. No one's like, oh, yeah, that's the best what place to be in. That's a good person. No, nobody say that. You'd be like, oh, yeah, they got some good quality. But you're like, that's a little shady. No one thinks highly of them. But that's what God sees us as. That's what he called us. He called us a whore. Dang. See, this is when he gets upset. He starts saying what he really feels. And the other week, God spoke this to me. Well, I didn't even know I was going to do this, but 
He says, we have to stop. We have to not praise our praise and worship our worship. He can't hear us if our hearts are far from him. I'm not in the song and dance. I must dwell in your hearts. Turn from your idols and turn back to me. I want purity, not performance. I want diligence, not a parade. I know the deep recesses of your heart. I need you to tap into that. I need you to dig there. That is where the truth is. Are you willing to dig into the depths to reach me? I can't be reached through your facades. I must be reached in spirit and in truth. Sin and purity cannot occupy the same place. How far will you go to dig the well so that you can excavate the sin that I, the Christ, sees? See, some of the sins we don't see, but God sees them. Because we've excused ourselves. And, and church is a fine place to excuse your sin. It's a fine place. Because we just cover it. We think because we wave our hand. We think because tears fall down our eyes. We think because we speak in tongues that that means, ah, I'm right with God. Or God forgave me. You think you run around the building and that gives you, that don't give you nothing with God. You speak because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He can't leave you. You got him. But you got him walking to every sin that you're walking into. You make him have to watch because he can't leave you. So you sit him on the end of the bed while you jump in bed, and he's got to sit there and watch you because he can't go anywhere. That should make you feel like crap, but it doesn't make us feel like crap because we keep doing it. We keep doing it. When do we stop? So the next thing I'm going to is uh, Revelations 3 and 14. The church of Laodicea. The church that we never attribute to ourselves. All the other churches we could say, oh yeah, I got that. Because you know, he had good things to say about every church except this one. So we just took out the good that he said with the other churches. Oh, that was me. Mm -hmm. I was the one, you know, you left your first love, but then the other ones you came back. and yeah, That was me. Thank you, Jesus. Laodicea. Hmm. We're going to dig in here and see where we fit, where we fit. So let's read it first. 14 through 22. Revelations 3, 14 through 22. To the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the witness who is faithful and true, the source of God's creation says, I know what you have done, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were cold or hot. But since you are lukewarm and not cold or hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I am wealthy, I don't need anything. Yet you do not realize that you are miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you, buy gold purified in the fire from me, so that you may be rich. Buy white clothes from me. Wear them so that you may keep your shameful, naked body from showing. Buy ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. Take this seriously and change the way you think and act. Look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone listens to my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and we'll eat together. I will allow everyone who wins the victory to sit with me on my throne, as I have won the victory and have sat down with my father on his throne. 
Let the person who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's walk through this. See what we can discover about ourselves. So the text begins explaining who is speaking. Now what it was believed is that Laodicea ended up getting caught up in the rhetoric of Colossians, the Colossians church, okay? They were about 100 miles from each other. In the Colossians church, it was a lot of things going on where they weren't believing the deity of Christ. So it was like, oh, he was just an angel, he's not God, and all that kind of stuff, and kind of seeped into the Laodicea church. So he started off, let's clear this up. This is who I am, I'm God, this is God speaking, Jesus is God, I sent him, he's the messenger, he's from the beginning, he's the amen, the true and faithful witness, he is, he is me. So take what I'm saying, because this is me telling you what you need to do, okay? So let's get some background on Laodicea. Because what I've learned is that sometimes we don't talk about the underneath history, and it makes the text not as clear and vibrant as it needs to be. So when you understand, because each church had a different, it was a city, right? It was a church in a city, and each city had a different type of reputation, a different stuff that was going on that was very personal to them. Because he's a personal God. So he speaks to you where you are and who you are and the circumstances that you're in so that you can understand him because he wants to be understood. And then when you understand this, you understand why he chose the words he spoke. It's going to be very, very clear. So Laodicea was situated in between two main trading routes in the Lycus River Valley. Because the valley was um, the most common route to travel, the people from the west came there, the people um, from the north, south, and the east all intersected right in front of Laodicea. Um, so it became a very wealthy city because this is where all the trading went on. And not only was it a significant city on, the, on one route, it was everywhere. Everyone crisscrossed here. It was the main thing because otherwise you had to go through the mountains and it's much better to go to the valley than the mountains. So crucial to the city was its water supply. There were some local streams in the area, but the population grew and developed. The local streams and the rivers became inadequate. So they had to create an aqueduct system underground, which they did, uh, to get the water from the mountains. And then they also got uh, water from the other side. But a lot of that was like hot water, geyser water. And then from the mountains, it was cold water, okay? By the time they got it, it was always lukewarm and yucky, and full of debris. That's why the water was significant when he said that. But the water system, because they didn't have fresh flowing water, they were always um, at the mercy of whoever was coming, military force, that would come and try to take over. Because even though the city was fortified, architecturally, all the people had to do, the military of another nation, could just come and cut off their water, and they would have to give in. So they didn't have the ability to really stand strong on their beliefs and say, I'm not going for this. They had to kind of sway sometimes because they knew that they needed water, right? So that made them very compromising in some areas. A second feature was that they were the banking center. So because this is where all the enterprises came, they held everybody's money. So they had a huge amount of money, very, very wealthy city, to the point that when they got destroyed in 60 AD, the Roman Empire came to them and said, I'll help you build it. And they said, we don't want your money. We've got our own money, and we will rebuild ourselves. 
that was a huge amount of pride for them because they were like, we're self-sufficient. We can do it ourselves. We don't need anybody. This is just us. And they made it better than what it was before. So they was like, you know, filling themselves a lot. The third thing was that they had this wool and it was a black glossy wool that no one else had. So they were able to use it for fabrics, for carpets, for, well, back there, rugs, for anything, but they were the only people that had it. So there, they were known for it and they got to export it. So all over, they were known for these things, which goes back to the clothing, okay? Now the fourth thing was that they had a medical school and they became known for iSalve so that people from all over would come to them and they had the ability to be able to heal people's eye problems, right? Which is why he said they're blind. So all these, these, these four things is what made them feel great, right? The only thing that was a little etchy was their water supply. The only thing that made them weak. Everything else, they were wonderful. So back to the text. Just to give you that so you can understand why he said what he said to them. Because he wanted them to understand what I'm saying to you. Um, verse 15 starts with stating, I know you, what you do, and who you are. Like, we're not going to even dispute this. I'm not asking you a question. I'm not saying, did you do such and such? I'm just telling you, I know you. Intimately, I know everything you've done. I know how you think. I know what's going through your mind. I know the actions that you've done, period. Now, we've got to realize that God knows this about us. Let's stop acting like we can, like, change stuff and be like, well, you know, I didn't mean it that way. That works for people, but not quite for God. Okay, so going back to the water supply, the main reason why this would hit them hard is because no matter where the source of water came from, the mountain, where it was cold, you know, good cold water invigorates you. Warm waters are like healing. You're like, oh, wonderful. Nobody wants some nasty lukewarm water. It, it, what does it do for you? Really nothing. And this is what God was saying. You're just a yucky. I just want to spit you out. You're just warm water with stuff in it. And you, this is what we let's think of the presentation we have to God. So think of yourself as just being a tall glass of water that's warm and got stuff floating in it. And you're saying, Jesus, drink me up. Now you would spit that out too. You, that's disgusting. This is how we present ourselves to God. Tie that back to Jeremiah, where he says, you left the good, clean water of me to make up your own man-made water systems and your own cleaning systems. You'd rather have that than to have good me. Now, if you take it spiritually, God can work on someone who's cold. You don't believe God, whatever. He can do a work on you. You know, you, you just say, I don't even want nothing to do with God. He can help you. Somebody that's really for God, hot, zealous, oh, they want God. And, and I'm not talking about a fake thing. I'm talking about a real thing where they really sincerely are seeking God, humble about it, like really desiring God. He's got them. This stuff in the middle and their food. See, the, the middle people are, are disillusioned. We don't even know we're warm water. We think we're just cold, good water, just vigorating to the soul. And he sees you as nothing. <sighs> but a Christian, the Christians, 
We're the hardest to convince that we need Christ. Because we think we already got him. You know, you already deemed yourself saved and superior. You got your set of rituals, you got your list, and you've become very self-sufficient in your belief of what it takes to be a saved person. You created it. And everyone got a different one. Because somehow the Bible just keeps getting rewritten. But everybody got a different list. Everybody got a different criteria to say, I'm saved today. And our rituals and our list have become our idols. We say, this means I'm saved. I don't care what the Bible says, but this means I'm saved. There is more hope for an atheist than a spoiled, half-hearted, conceited hypocrite who thinks he knows the truth and pretends to accept it. Because that's what we are. Because they have a lukewarmness of religion. And that's what we've become. They sense no chill. Right? They're not cold. They're not feeling like, oh my God, did God leave me? Mm-hmm. We always think God is with us. <laughs> He's never going to leave me. Good Lord. Um, if they were cold enough to feel the bitterness and severity of their sin, they would be more readily brought to the knowledge of Christ. But we're conceited, self-deceived, and we're making God sick. John Stout once wrote, the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, in name only, skin deep religiosity, which is so widespread amongst us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic, and we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath. Some churches are, are um, some, some of the churches made God weep. Why are you talking about you grieve me? Some of them made them really angry. This church just made them sick. Have you ever had like the stomach flu? That's the worst feeling ever. You're just, you're making me vomit. Your behavior just makes me vomit. I mean, mean, there's nothing else I can do. I can't even take you down. I just, I've got to spit you out. You nauseated Christ. Like, does that bother us? That we have him nauseated? Gosh. I mean, I remember being pregnant and I stayed nauseated. That is the worst feeling ever. Just your stomach just hurting. But on top of being lukewarm, they were self-deceived. Which was even worse. Verse 17. You say... I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I don't need anything. And he goes on to say, yet you don't realize that you're miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That was a whole lot. I mean, he wasn't like you just, you didn't even just say, oh, you just look warm. You are miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Gosh. Now, as we learned earlier, that materially they were a wealthy city and took great pride on being self-sufficient. They were ecstatic that they could build themselves out. You know, that sounds familiar to us. Mm -hmm. We're excited about that. You know, we feel like we got it going on. But in this text, I am rich is also talking about spiritual wealth. So they felt like they they were wealthy spiritually as well. Look, these people were still coming to the church. They were still participating. They didn't know this about themselves. So you think you know your stuff and you don't need any new knowledge. 
This is the reason why we can just sit and be like, I already know that. I got that. I know what that means. I know them scriptures. Okay. Hmm. This grandiose idea can easily leak into every aspect of our being. I don't need anything. I can stand alone. I'm self-sufficient. It's been indoctrinated in us, especially in this westernized society. It is really about individuality, and it is killing us. Hmm. Think of this as a mindset of how you perceive life. Do you perceive life all about you? What you can get, what you want to do, how you want to proceed. Do you ever consider other people? Are other people a part of? And is God a part of your plans? Mm -hmm. Never think that you can't make yourself your own idol. Same chiding as was in Jeremiah. Then Christ just breaks them down, and he makes it clear that you were self-deceived, right? So the first one, you're miserable and pitiful. Those kind of go together. You're wretchedly unhappy, uncomfortable, and uneasy. That's how God, he's, that's what you really are. Now you got the facade. I see you waving your hand. I see you looking a nice way. But inside, you're uncomfortable and uneasy and unhappy. So you ask yourself, in what way do these things ring true for you? Where are you unhappy? Where are you feeling uncomfortable and uneasy? Then he says you're poor. And though you have material wealth, they didn't have enough God to meet the necessities when calamities came and if death should approach. And they were therefore in the strictest sense of the term poor. Now, some of us, we want to say, well, I don't think I'm wealthy because we compare ourselves to people that have billions. But if you look at the normal person, and if you look globally, we're doing pretty darn good. Certain the fact that, what, like 70% of people, talking about globally, are making like $2 a day, we're doing pretty good. Now, we compare ourselves to this mess, but we're wealthy. Mm -hmm. So remember, we have been westernizing our thoughts of what God sees as important. And materials today says we're blessed. Mm -hmm. See, we need very tangible things. We need to be able to touch stuff. Otherwise, we feel like God's not on our side. Tie that back to Jeremiah. When he said, when the calamities come, you run back to me. But you don't want me any other time. In what ways are you poor in your knowledge of God? Go get some wealth. There's no reason to be stupid. Three, he says you're blind. You will see the chidings of blindness throughout the Bible. We are often cited as blind because our spiritual eyes are so dim. They not only had no vision of their failings, but they also had no vision of the character of God. They had no idea who God was and they had no idea who they were. Hence, they say that they have no need for anything, yet God says you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, yet you think that you're the opposite. So then you have to ask yourself, what matters most to you, God's vision or your own? Mm -hmm. Number four, then he says you're naked. So salvation is seen as a garment. Mm -hmm. So in this, he's saying you have no religion or no God. You're naked. You have nothing to cover you from the storms, the snow, the heat, the wind. You stand in shame as you show your nakedness to everyone. Your disillusionment has you believing that you're covered, but it's just all sheer. 
So you got something covering you, and we see right through it. You stand exposed. So ask God, am I clothed or naked? Because he needs to answer that for you. Because right now you think you're clothed, but you need to see if he sees you as naked without him. Am I partially dressed or am I fully dressed in you? Because maybe you got on a pair of shoes or a bottom, but your top is exposed. I mean, I don't know what you got on. I'm just saying you need to get, we need to be fully dressed, fully clothed in him, not just partially. He doesn't like partiality. So, so now verse 18 is where you see his love and his kindness step in once again. Although you're ultimately saying, I have no need of anything, and God would be included in this. And before you say, I would never say this, okay? Because we always say, oh, you know, we always think we're better than what we are. He's looking at our hearts, and he's looking at our actions, not our words. Because we say a lot of mess that's just pure lies, but the way we think, the way our heart feels, what we do is completely contradictory to what we say half the time. Okay. So, remember, he started off with, I see you intimately. So, don't sit here and try to exclude yourself from any of this stuff that we talked about. Figure out where you fit in. Because we're fitting in somewhere in this, okay? Um, so, here he goes instructing us again, verse 18. He says, I advise you. He's telling you how to get yourself right. Listen to me. Buy gold purified in the fire from me so that you may be rich. Buy white clothes from me. Wear them so that you may keep your shameful naked body from showing and buy ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. So here he gives three remedies, excuse me, for the four ailments above. This point is interesting. He says that they are poor, but then instructs them to come by. What can they give in exchange for what he is offering if they have nothing? The only thing you have is your own wretched condition. So that's all you can offer God. That's what you bring to the altar to sacrifice. Will you sacrifice yourself? Not just your sin, but will you sacrifice your own self to get right with God? Will you trust him to burn up whatever he needs to burn up in you so that you can be right before him. Will you finally say, I am poor, blind, naked, and in need of you? See, that's a humbling. And then the trip thing is, you can say the words, but then he knows if your heart really means it. He knows if you're just saying it because, well, I feel like I should probably say that, but I'm about to go pick that idol up as soon as I hit these doors. Hmm. So you come to God and say, I'll give you me for you. Is that a deal? Think about, well, that's all he says. You offer me you, and I'm going to give you me. Because he says then, will one man give in exchange for his soul? What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, and can he give that in exchange for his soul? No. What can you give in exchange for your soul? The only thing you can give is yourself. That is your repentance. You have to say, I renounce myself. I yield myself. I give myself to you. In essence, I turn from myself and my idols, and I turn and run to you. 
If you can't do that, then you have not repented. You just say, God, forgive me. Because asking God for forgiveness and repentance are two different things. We ask forgiveness a lot. A lot. Oh, Lord, I just did that. Forgive me. And I did it again. And forgive me. And <laughs> just one more time, forgive me. But we never repent. We never turn our backs to it and run towards God. That's repentance. You really need repentance for salvation, not just forgiveness. Just in case you didn't know that. So the purified goal represents pure religion. You have to be willing to be tried in the fire so that God can pull the unclean things out of you. The only riches he cares about are the ones that he produces. That's why he says, come get your riches from me. Now, will you stay with him when he dips you in the fire? It's going to burn. Like, burning hurts. You may have to stay in the fire a long time, depending on how much stuff you got in you. Now, are you going to feel like God forsook you because he kept you in the flames? Are you going to say, no, this is for my good? All those things work together for my good. We don't see them as good because we don't realize that he's trying to get us clean. So, you know, that, that thing has to keep getting burned. We wonder why, why do I ever get relief? Because you refuse to do what he asks. You refuse to give up your idols. And because he loves you so much, he just says, well, I've got to put you in the fire again. We keep jumping out. And then we get mad and we turn from God and say, God, I don't want you because you're too harsh. This is not the God I learned about. This is not the love and the mercy and the gracious God. This is a mean God. You don't love me. Look at so-and-so. They seem so happy and content. Where, where have, what have they went through? That comparison thing will kill us every time. Because you don't know what folks go through. And you don't know how. Maybe they didn't give their life to God and you didn't. You know, maybe they got rid of their idols. And you still struggling. So just, you know, calm your nerves and look at yourself. Just go in the mirror. So then he says, buy white clothes for me so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. White raiment can mean holiness of heart and life. God wants to cover our sins with his sacrifices. He doesn't want us to be exposed to the ailments. With pure religion, you are, you are naked and shame without, excuse me, pure religion. You are naked and shameful in his sight. We must figure out what is pure religion. Ours is very tainted. So you must go on an exposition to find out what pure religion is. Because otherwise you got nothing. And you're naked. Then he says, buy ointment to put on the eye so that you can see. We need God vision. It doesn't matter what I say. It don't matter what the pastor say. It don't matter what sister so-and-so say and mother and brother say. It only matters what God says. If God sees me as wretched and naked and poor, then that is all that matters to me. He says in Isaiah and Matthew, you see, but you see nothing. He says, you hear, but you don't hear nothing. And he said this over and over, like, why well, well, haven't we got it? You have no vision of me. Without a vision, the people perish. We're perishing because we don't have God vision. You keep thinking your vision is clear and you're blind. You don't see anything. 
So you see from before why he chose those things, right? The, the wealth, the water, all that was very much so about their life. Let God speak to you about your life. He has lessons for you in your life that he will make so expansive if you will give yourself to them. But we don't really want to learn. We would rather have a cookie cutter kind of religion and a cookie cutter kind of system because that means I don't have to be pushed. I don't have to be prodded. I get to just stay in the same assembly line. We get to go through the thing, everybody doing the same thing, the same way, same praise, the same everything. But you got nothing. You're all blind running after each other. If you want a personalized religion, you're going to have to get dirty and deep with God. That means he's going to pull out some stuff in you that you don't want to even touch. That you would prefer to be buried. Will you go and dig your well? Or will you stay where you are? Because you can stay where you are. He's not going to push you out your seat. He really not. He going to let you just stay there. And at the end, you just have to pay the price. It's always your choice. So he ends his, his letter, right, with his heart again in his hand, offering it to them once again. So feel his love and his desire for them to get it together. It is with these words he is speaking to us today, if we will listen. So grasp what he is actually offering to us. Verse 19, he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. Take this seriously and change the way you think and act. Look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone listens to my voice and opens the door, I will come in and we will eat together. I will allow everyone who wins the victory to sit with me on my throne as I have won the victory and have sat down with my father on his throne. Let the person who hears listen to what the spirit says to the churches. He is offering us naked, wretched, undone folks who have become whores and adulterers to sit on the throne with him. The throne. The throne. Like the throne that I'm going to to get myself together, I'm going to sit up there with you. We don't deserve this, y'all. He's offering the throne to us. And we don't want that. It's because we don't believe God. We don't believe him. We don't see this as being as big as it is. If you saw it as big as it is, there's no way we would keep just cutting a fool. There's no way. You don't believe. We've got to confess that first. Lord, I don't believe this is as grand as you say it is. I've been around this thing for long enough, and I don't believe no more. It's not exciting, thrilling, nothing like that to me. Let's just confess it. Lord, reignite me. Show me again who you are. Like, let's start from the basics again. I don't know you. And I'm not even sure I want to know you. I'm just going to fool around with this and see what we come up with. At least let's be honest. Instead of acting like we really love Jesus, you don't love him. You don't love him when we can do this stuff to him. That's not love. That's not where love comes from. 
I cannot just run all over him and say, I love you. And I'm, he's supposed to accept it? Because I came and waved my hand? Because I cried some tears? <sighs> so I present this with hopes that we have an ear to hear. And I pray that we choose to see where we fit in instead of where we don't fit in. We all have sins we have yet to repent of. And he only forgives the sins we repent of. He doesn't forgive stuff that you don't give to him. Now that means every one of them. He applies the blood individually to sins. He don't paint over it. You say, I slept with this person, then he, if you repent, covers it with his blood. I hated this person, he covers it with his blood. He don't do just a white thing because you say, Lord, forgive me if I sinned. He wants the details. So how many sins have we not repented of that still need some blood applied to them? So I'm asking God to show me all of them so that I can give them back to him and he can forgive me because I'm trying to get this thing right because I don't stand here in judgment. Now, y'all, most of y'all know this. Um, I'm trying to get this right myself. I figure we can all do the journey together, right? Um, I'm just merely saying take heed lest we gonna all fall. And we're supposed to help each other out. If I see you fall, I'm supposed to try to grab you because I don't want you to go down that hole, but you, you keep adding rocks to your pockets. I'm going to have to let you go because <laughs> I, I can't slip down the hole with you now. I'm, I'm, I'm offering you a rope and I'm going to do all that stuff, but you keep putting rocks in that pocket. I'm going to have to step back because I can't go to hell for you. You know, I can't let you dirty me up in the process because, you know, evil communication corrupts the good manner. We, we got to put everything in the right place. Now, I'm, I'm just going to do my part. And I thank God for not giving up on us. Yeah. Right? Like that he keeps calling us and touching us and saying come back home. And he keeps doing it. But I can't think and be so arrogant that he can't say I'm tired of you. I'm, I just don't want to do this with you no more. I got, you know, a hundred million other folks I got to fool with. And I'm, I'm tired of you. Because, see, I get tired. God gets to get tired. I don't want him to get tired of me and see me as just fooling around. And it depends on if you want to take it seriously. So, I mean, you know, you can pray and ask God to open your eyes to see, give you ears to hear. And I think you got to constantly make an altar like they did in the Old Testament. Every time you know something, you just make an altar right there. Burn it up, Lord. Let me lay it on the altar. I mean, Andre, in the beginning, we, we, he did the burning the fat. Ooh, Lord. If we got the podcast now, so y'all can go back and hear all this stuff, the ones y'all, y'all missed. That burning the fat, he talked about laying it on the altar, because what they used to do. And you had to cut the throat. And you had to watch the thing bleed out. So will you lay your sin on the altar and cut its throat and watch it die? Because, see, we love our sin. It, 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 we don't hate it. We're not disgusted with it. I have an affection for the stuff that I've been with. So will you kill the very thing you love so that you can be with the God of your salvation? 
You got to kill it. You. Not, Lord, if you find anything in me, take it out and strengthen me. No, that don't work. You've got to put it on the altar and cut its throat and then watch it burn up. That thing you love so much, that thing that you feel like that is you and it's a part of you and it gives you comfort for the moment. It makes you feel good for the moment. You have to decide to kill it. I'm finished.